Thank you. So much to this. I know. Thanks. All right. That was, that was a good song to preface the message. And the reason being is we, we listen to that song, and, and it repeats the same point, right? Why should he love me in, in such a way that he does? Why should he love me so? And I think in our lives, and, and what I want to kind of get us to think about before I get into this this morning is why don't we hold on to that as strongly as we should, right? When we find ourselves in any situation in, in life or we find ourselves struggling, why is it that we seem so quick to let go of the love, right? We talk about it in our Bible studies. We talk about it when we're exhorting and encouraging each other. Again, I've gone through my past week since Tuesday has been, you know, exhortation after exhortation, and I constantly find myself listening and affirming and agreeing with the saints. However, then I find myself wondering, why do we so easily forget that? Why do we become so preoccupied with the way the world wants us to think rather than so absorbed and occupied with the way God loves us and what God has provided? Again, that text I keep mentioning, I've already mentioned it a third time now, he's given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness, and that's a part of the love, right? That was God's love. He gave everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. And I say that again and again, and I say, do I really believe that? Do we really believe that? That he's given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. And then I wonder, and of course I think we all know why, but I wonder, why can't I just keep that there? Why, in every moment, every situation I find myself in, why don't I approach it as if God has given me everything pertaining to life and godliness in this situation? Unfortunately, I think we're all on the same page where we become preoccupied. We allow the world, unfortunately, the stain of the world, if you will, to affect us. And that's... um, Sort of my message this morning, my, the title of the message is When the World Tries to Occupy. And uh, what we've been doing here is we've been going through the season of fire, and I've been challenging us that this is a great time for us. Being that it's hot, it's a good reminder. Things hot. Love. Love is usually symbolized by fire. So now every time you find yourself going to complain, and I actually had the opportunity to uh, use this this week, um, anytime I find myself going to complain about how hot it is, which part of the occupies my mind uh, very easily on um, that complaint, um, I say, no, this is a season of love, passion, God's understanding God's judgment. So instead of thinking that the stinking thinking of, oh, it's so hot, or, you know, I want to get frustrated, I find myself saying, no, no, no. You remember why you're entering into the season. It's a hot season, so how can I grow in love right now? Instead of saying, why is it so hot, how can I grow in love right now? How can I become more passionate about God right now? That's what it is. God made it hot because he wants me to be passionate. Okay, I, I can go for that. Um, so, again, the point of the season of fire is to challenge us. Use this as a season of love, of, to grow in love, to pursue God and godly things with passion, and to understand God's judgment. And I want to preface my message with a text from 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 22, and it says this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And I have that bold in my, my writing here. It's... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, I'm going to read it again. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, 
Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seeking after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 19 is another one I have in bold here. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. My goal this morning is to challenge us in that regard. We've been going through the book of Exodus for about a month now. And I pray that you've noticed the way in which I've been preaching through Exodus and that you understand why. Allow me to explain. My messages have been a bit more applicational lately, right? Last week we talked about leading, right, and leadership and how we need to be, we need to look at the model there of Moses and Aaron and understand leadership. We talked about the week prior to that, talked about Moses' parents um, and how we need to have a faith similar to theirs, a saving faith um, that they did. And I've been seeking to be a lot more applicational, taking details from the Exodus that we see here in the book of Exodus and highlighting how they might apply to us as we live in the reality of all that God has provided. Again, pertaining to everything. He gave everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. As the scriptures remark, what I just said, <laughs> obviously, as we examine and study the scriptures, we can glean insight from every passage. I'm, I'm hoping we would all agree there, right? That when we go to any text, you go to Genesis 1, you go to Genesis 2, there's something there for us. It might not be immediate. It might not be what it meant to Adam, right? but we can definitely glean some insight. Obviously, when we read Luke chapter 21, I, nobody in this room at least is planning to move to the mountains, so we know that that wisdom still applies to us in some way. However, we, we are not the people that that text is speaking to to go move to the mountains. So I say that because when we look at Exodus, there's a lot that we can learn from that. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he made it explicitly clear that the details in the Old Testament, specifically pertaining to Moses and this Exodus journey, were written as an example. That's what he says. He says, these were written as an example up to us upon whom the ends of, ends of the ages has come. Now, we're not the people that the end of the ages has come to. So then we sit there and we say, okay, well then, how does 1 Corinthians chapter 10 apply to us? Because we're not the people waiting. How does the Exodus then apply to us? And I believe this, the same question would have been asked of those that entered into the promised land. Right after the Exodus journey, they would look back to that Exodus and they would say, well, how does the Exodus journey apply to us? And I'll say this, I don't believe that the Jews had, or the Hebrew people had any problem understanding how it applied to them. I believe it was very clear because they use it again and again throughout the prophets. The Lord who redeemed you from Egypt, the Lord who with outstretched arm saved you from Egypt. And it was a reminder. They used that past event as a reminder of God's faithfulness, as a reminder of what God was doing in their midst. He called himself a people. We're going to see here in the text today. And uh, they understood that, that while they weren't the people going through the Exodus, they understood that those truths applied to them, that this is a God that created a people. This is the God that led us into the land. This is the God that has established all things by his outstretched arm. As I mentioned a couple of times in the last month or so, and we'll be detailing in weeks to come, there's an amazing, clarifying connection between the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. The parallels and the shared insights from both books highlight the prophetic wisdom that, should, that encouraged saints in times past, should encourage the saints in times present, and will encourage us in times future. A wisdom that spoke wonders in the past 
living in the present and hopes for the future. Yes, hopes. Hopes built on the one hope, as I made mention of quite a few weeks ago, that we have such a strong hope that our hope breeds new hopes. It's, it's almost a platform, it's a foundation that you can build new hopes on. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that the man who listens to my words and puts them into action is like the wise man that builds his house on a rock. So understanding God and understanding everything he's doing is our rock. Understanding what he has accomplished is our rock. It's our hope. So now that we have that rock, hopefully we want to build on top of the rock. And that's where our lives are. Our lives are building on top of the foundation that he has already established for us. So what I would like to do this morning is continue going through our reading and thinking through the scriptures and offer up an exhortation I believe is in line with that which the apostles, especially the apostle Paul, would have commended. Not that we are living in their context the last days, but rather in our living beyond those days, we can apply that wisdom. Because as many of us have noted, the battle wasn't over when they entered into the promised land. So again, there's, they're going through this exodus journey, and yes, God needs to do a mighty work and save them and redeem them and be with them, but even when they get in the promised land, God still needs to go before them, help them conquer the enemies. There's still work to do. So it wouldn't have been, oh God, we need to go through this exodus, we need to get through this struggle, and then they get through it and okay, thank God. It would have been, no, we always have struggles, and I think we all know that, right? We come into the Christian faith, it's not all of a sudden like, all my uh, struggles disappear and all these things. No, I'm in the promised land, amen. I have the one hope, amen. But I'm still hoping for new things because I have new struggles that I need to get through. And I believe that's the benefit of the word of God. I believe that I preached yesterday about the necessity of the knowledge of God. And I basically challenged the audience I was standing in front of that without the knowledge of God, you can do all sorts, you can change things in your life, sure. Right? But without the knowledge of God, you will not see any God-glorifying or substantial change. And I believe that. Because, again, I believe God has given to me everything pertaining to life and godliness. And without really accepting that and knowing the, the value of the knowledge of God um, or believing Revelation 22.2, that the leaves of the tree will be used for the healing of the nations, without believing that, then things become a bit dismal. I don't know that you could call yourself a Christian if you don't believe that the knowledge of God is the source of necessary healing. So, dare we say, when it comes to battles in life, they're never truly over. So this wisdom always has to apply. Whatever God always seems to show his faithfulness in times of trial, in times of tribulation. And that's a good thing because it means that he's never done showing his faithfulness, never done showing his work. Because I imagine many of you like me find yourself in new struggles, in new battles, in facing new demons. Imagine I would have brought up the word demons yesterday. So, uh, all right, so... Uh, it sounds tough and dismal at times. It really does. It sounds tough to say that we'll always have struggles. We'll always have battles. But it's reality. It's reality. And it reminds us that we are allowed by his grace and his good pleasure to continue to see his faithfulness in bringing us into experiencing eternal life. So I want to bring us to the text here. I'm going to bring us to Exodus chapter 4. I had encouraged us last week to read Exodus chapter 4 through Exodus chapter 6. So take us to that text here. And if you're following along, Exodus chapter 4 is found on pages 59 and 60 because I'm going to be going through the full text here. The page you want to be on at this point is page 60 because I'm going to read verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. 
We went through all the details with Moses and Aaron. And now here in verse 27, it says, Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went, met him at the mountain of God, and kissed him. So the reason I wrote down verse 27 was that it says, And the Lord said, right? So this is not Moses and Aaron coming up with a good concept. This is God saying something. This is God telling them what to do. And if you read through chapter 4 into chapter 5, you're going to read a lot of things like, Moses or Aaron told the people of Israel the words the Lord had sent them to tell people, right? That's continually what you're seeing in chapters 4 and 5. You have Moses and Aaron being commissioned to go talk, by, commissioned by God to go speak to Israel, to go tell them the things that God was about to do in their midst. And Aaron even does miracles in the midst of the people, right? It shows you that there in Exodus chapter 4. So you read through the text, and then... You get to Exodus chapter 5, right? Everything's going good, and obviously, well, it's going good in some sorts. The bad thing is, is, as I read through the text, I constantly wonder, Moses, God appears to you in a burning bush, you know, and, and I don't give up. Maybe I should give him a break, but I know in my life I always wonder, if God appeared to me in a burning bush and started talking to me in an audible voice, I really wouldn't turn back. I, I, I want to say, you know, I want to be careful here. I want to say that I would turn back and I would say, you know what, whatever you say, I'll say to whoever you want. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Because, again, if it's God speaking from a burning bush, uh, you know, I would say that I'd be that person now, and I've never had that moment that God would, you know, spoke to me from a burning bush and I heard his audible voice. Um, so I get frustrated with the text. I get frustrated with Moses, and I wonder, what is wrong with you? You know, and, again, as I mentioned last week, I, but I do identify because I know I find myself there too sometimes where I say, I thought you said you believe that God gave everything pertaining to life and godliness. Why do you doubt that now, Mike? So, you know, I understand Moses' dilemma there. But everything seems to be going good here in Exodus 4 and 5 because God's giving them instructions. He's telling them, all right, you know, go. And they're going and they're telling the people, you know, God told us this. So we're telling you this. God told me to do miracles. I'm doing this. Everything seems to be going good. Now I want to bring us to Exodus chapter 5, starting at verse 4. So now they go to, they go to the, uh, the Pharaoh, right? And they say, the God of the Hebrews has told us that you need to let us go into the wilderness to bring an offering before him. And go to the wilderness for three days. I might encourage us to do some reading um, through the different uh, rabbinical teachings as to what this whole three days in the journey, because there's some questions. You know, would God, uh, was he really ever supposed to go into the wilderness for three days and come back? Is that, was that the plan? Like, you think God was really going to have them do that? Like, yeah, don't worry, go out there, do a sacrifice, and then just come back into bondage and, and stay there. Like, you wonder what's going on there. But anyway, um, starting at verse 4, listen to how the Pharaoh responds. He says, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your work. Get back to your labor. Again, the Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So that same day, the Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks, as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks, which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, so that they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says the Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. 
The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work, Quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making the bricks previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came out and cried to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal with us like this? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is, your, it is the fault of your own people. Pharaoh said to them, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Notice the second time there. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the court of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Wow. It was all going so good. Right? You get an instruction, you guys are telling everybody stuff. Now you're at the point where Moses is actually basically saying, You haven't done anything. You've made it more complicated for us. And uh, what I wrote here in my notes is attention occupied and bogged down. You know, that's what the goal is. And I'm going to venture to say this in an applicational way. That's the way this world works. And I believe that's the way God has designed this world to work. That this world all too often wants to almost say to us, no, you're lazy and you want to go and worship your God. Right? Rather than seeing no, and my point is there, is that the world wants to preoccupy your time. The world wants you to be bogged down and feel defeated. Whereas, and that's what's being done here by the Pharaoh, and also if we're using Moses as an example, even his own people of bogging him down and, and kind of discouraging him from everything. And, and again, I believe in a way that that's what we see with the world. The world tries to occupy. And I did some definition looking up. The word occupy obviously means to fill. So the world wants to fill your life, right? Carnality. Carnal thoughts want to fill your life. Well, perfectly well in agreement. We know where carnal thoughts will lead us. So uh, it says, you know, carnality leads to death and sin and death, whereas um, the spirit, a mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So I don't want carnality to fill my mind. And I don't want my mind to be reminding me, you know, you're lazy and you just want to go and worship your God. I want my mind to say, I, what I want to fill my thoughts with is, no, I'm going to be passionate, loving, and knowledgeable in the service of my God. My God has given me everything pertaining to life and godliness, so I'm going to pursue him at all costs, rather than the junk the world, carnality, wants to fill my mind with. I also looked up occupy as also a military term, right? And it means to control and possess a nation to establish a military government against an enemy or martial law against the rebels. And again, when you read the story here of Israel and Egypt and how the Pharaoh is working against them, I don't know how you don't see occupation. That's what he's trying to do. Put taskmasters over them. He wants to control their world. He doesn't even want them to have a, a little bit of hope. I'm not even going to let you go out there for three days because three days is going to lead to what? Or... As he's noticing, if I was noticing here, these people start going off on this, this little segue here, worshiping their God. He obviously didn't get it. Um, but then we're not getting the work done, and we're not in control. You know, he sees that. He sees these people are becoming numerous, 
And if we allow this and we allow them to think for themselves, um, we're not going to be in control. So he starts to obviously, it's the way of the world. Again, this is the way of the world. You know, the way that you're going to do it then is going to bog them down to make them feel defeated. And that way they won't even cry out. They won't even want to go worship their God anymore. And then Moses, the most depressing thing there is Moses basically denying God, doubting God. This is the God that appeared in a burning bush. This is the God that's been working in his life. I mean, again, going all the way back. Moses, you were saved out of a river because your family had enough faith to put you in a boat so that you would be saved to save a nation. Then God appeared to him in a burning bush. So, sorry, you can't go even back even further. There's so much stuff there that he should have known. This is a man that should be so passionate and ready for the glory of God, yet now he feels weak because he's bogged down, defeated by the world. I also thought bogged down was a term of my own. I was glad to see that that is a real term. So uh, bogged down means to be like stuck, you know, like buried in a sense. And uh, you definitely see that happening here. When the world bogs us down, don't we feel defeated? That's what happens, right? Carnality. You, you fill your mind with carnality, you end up feeling defeated. That is the sin and death that comes by the way of carnality. Here in Exodus 6.1, God says, Then the Lord says to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to the Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. So obviously the thing we as Christians know is when you find yourself at that moment of despair and doubt, God will show up. That's what God's saying. He's like, okay, you know what? Clearly Moses is not the representative that God's made. He's like, I'll, I'll do this myself. Now I will show you. And then he says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, this is God's plan. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to a land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You know, that was another thing that uh, troubled me as I read through Exodus chapters 4 through 6, was how many times God reminds these people, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I do this. I say to you, He's not asking Moses to do anything. He's saying, I'm doing this. I'm going before you. I'm establishing you. Yet, unfortunately, Moses is like us sometimes, right? You know, he gets bogged down, feels defeated. And uh, that's my point this morning. My point for us this morning is that there are two types of believers, right? When the world tries to occupy your time, we see two different types of believers emerge. The first one would be, and I'm imagining many of us can identify, Moses. Moses and the people of Israel, they're weak in their faith. Again, the text I marked out is Exodus 5, verse 23, where, God says, where Moses says, Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses has lost faith in the power of the name. He's lost faith. He doesn't even see God working. So, and then again in Exodus 6, 9, we saw, So Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So they don't believe in God. So Moses doesn't believe in God. The people around him don't believe in God. You also see in Exodus chapter 6, verses 20, 28 through 30, Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that I, all that I speak to you. But Moses turned to the Lord and said, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How will the Pharaoh listen to me? How many times do I need to say, I am the Lord? I, you know, God said it so many times. 
Moses, it's not you. It's not you. It's me. But again, when you're so bogged down and defeated, right, they try to put this in an applicational way. When we find ourselves in those situations where we find ourselves so bogged down and defeated and we're believing the lies of the world, we're not seeing God work in our circumstance, we end up saying the same thing. But God, I, I, but God, I can't do this. But God, I don't have enough strength. And I feel like God always says to me, and I'll speak for myself here, he says, I'm not asking you to do anything. I will do it. God has given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. I believe that. But for some reason in those moments, I don't. So the word occupy is the key. And that's why the front of your bulletin looks kind of crazy there. It's showing what happens. You know, you have, whatever occupies your mind, that, that fist there for power, um, occupies your mind, has power over your mind. And the question is, are we, are we filling our mind with more doubt like Moses is here, and we become a people that are occupied and bogged down by the world? Or, I'm going to take us to another example. Or are we like David? See, David was a man that knew the power in the name, and he operated in the power of the name. Like you read in First Samuel chapter 17, you read about David and Israel there. And uh, there's quite a few things I want to say about this. I'm going to make them short. First thing about David, if you go back to chapter 16, um, when Nathan the prophet came to David's house, I always love this story. Uh, Nathan, he comes to Jesse's house, and uh, he says, one of his sons are about to be called as the king. And Jesse, all excited, you know, goes and gets his sons and lines them up in front of Nathan. He's like, here are my sons. Which one is it? Who, who, which is the guy? And Nathan's looking around. Any more sons? None of them, no, somebody's missing. Somebody's missing. Well, guess what? Because somebody else was being occupied by the world. Right? His father didn't believe in David. David was a, they said he was a beautiful man. So he was a man that was only fit for not going to war and not standing in front of a prophet to see who was the next king. He was fit for caring for the shepherd, the sheep, and, you know, getting out there and being a shepherd. And uh, so he wasn't the guy that, his father didn't even believe in him. Imagine, now internalize that. His father didn't even believe in him to the point that he was a mighty man of God or that he would ever be a mighty man of God. I can't even imagine the despair that his father didn't even bring him in front of the prophet. The prophet says, one of your sons will be king. Jesse, all right, these are my sons. Here they are, and it's not them. And it shows you that the world at that point was working against David. You see, the world was trying to occupy his time. It was putting him somewhere out there. Send him away. And then you see David in 1 Samuel 17. You see some of it because even his brother, his brother has an attitude with him. He says, you know, it seems that David would have been a person that his faith was, uh, some of you mentioned it this morning. Actually, Sandy, it was you. Um, we talked about, I was saying how I'm going to sit in front of the Church of Christ and I'm just going to tell them who I am in the Lord, right? And that oftentimes comes off as arrogant, right? And it seems that David was probably known like that. He was so full of this, like, what God was doing in him. He was a man after God's own heart. Right? So imagine being that person on how others might receive that. And it seems that his brother, in First Samuel uh, 17, we see one of his brothers rebukes him like, why are you here? Why are you trying to take the attention? And it just, it, it saddens me because you have a man that, as we, we know the after, you know, I know the full story. You have a man that was so full of, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that knew the power of the name. Yet the world worked against him. His father denies him. His brothers don't want him around. They don't even see him. And obviously, when the Philistines saw him, I'm sure they were like, okay, that, that's going to be the guy that's going to come up against our biggest warrior. It's safe to say that David probably felt occupied and bogged down as well. He definitely was occupied. Occupied with the shepherd stuff. Occupied with it. whatever his father wanted him to do, save for the things that 
God was probably preparing for him. I wrote in my uh, text here, the difference between Moses and Israel. Oh, Moses and Israel were occupied and bogged down. David was occupied, sure, bogged down. He got in the fight and he was not faint apart. We continue reading through 1 Samuel 17, and you read about how Israel was definitely bogged down. They don't know who's going to go up against this Philistine. That's calling out taunts. He's taunting them. They're fearful. David then gets discouraged by his brother. But David understands something, and I'm going to turn there. 1 Samuel 17. David understands something that Moses was supposed to understand and something that each and every one of us are going to internalize. And I'm going to complete my point on this, and I'm going to hope that this will be what carries us into our Lord's table this morning. 1 Samuel 17, verses 42 to 47. When the Philistines looked and saw David, he hated him, for he was but a youth, ready, with a handsome appearance. The Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you would come against me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David in his God, by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give you I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, you come to me with a spear, a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This is the day the Lord will deliver up into my hands, will deliver you up into my hands. And I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead body of your army of the Philistines to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. And here it is. The battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. See, why did Moses have that? Moses going up against Pharaoh. Pharaoh, okay, fine, we'll sit here for as long as you want. You can give us as much work as you want. But we will be the victors because the battle is the Lord's. Both Moses and David lived in realities that the enemy, whatever, however you want to categorize that enemy, tried to occupy. The enemy tried to discourage them, tried to bog them down. You might say the enemy tried to steal, kill, and destroy, right? John 10, 10. Yet through both stories, you see an example of a weak faith and a victorious faith. The question is not, we don't want to be one and we don't want to be the other. The question is, how do we be secure in being the other, the victorious faith? Because, again, we're going to find ourselves in both points. We're always going to be. We're always going to be struggling in those areas. We're going to find ourselves in weakness. We're going to find ourselves of, um, in victory. And another important point here is that, you know, that Moses and David are both men that are marked out as men of faith. So there's an encouragement there that even when we find ourselves identifying with the Moses and the Israel of the Exodus, bogged down and occupied, we still have that opportunity to say, I'm in the faith. I'm just weak right now. So do you doubt God constantly? Are you quick to give in and give up, seeing no point to striving with God? Or are you willing to serve, listening to the utterances and the realities going on around you so that you may get involved, that you may get in the fight, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord? Because there is power in the name. The question is, are we convinced? What must be done to strengthen our faith in the power of the name? Where and how might you need to apply the wisdom the battle is the Lord's? Let's move into the Lord's Prayer.
and then we'll go into the Lord's Supper. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. This time I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward, or, yeah, ushers to come forward, and we will participate in the Lord's Supper. Maybe we'll change that to the leaders. (laughs) Well, the Apostle Paul prefaces this glorious celebration that we're about to partake with an urge for each and every one of us to examine ourselves. So it's only fitting that as we move into celebrating the presence of God amongst us, that we would just take an opportunity to note it. That we would ask God right now, you are in our presence. Where are you doing a work in my life? Where do you want me to say the battle is yours? I'm going to ask that we just take a moment to examine ourselves and to truly press in to where we need to see our faith strengthened. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask one of our leaders here to do exactly that and to give thanks. And then we're going to hand out the bread that symbolizes the broken body. We'll all eat together to symbolize our unity in his struggles and all that Christ has accomplished in his body. So please hold on so that we all may receive together.
as we eat of the bread, let's truly think of the power that there is in the body of Christ, the one body. Please eat the bread. The Apostle Paul continues, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, the blood. Without the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And we know that, that that wedding of Christ's blood represents a beautiful reality for us. It opened up the veil for us as we partake of that. I trust that after we have our giving of thanks, we will partake of that and just truly relish our identity in Christ, that we are those that have had our sins forgiven. Dear Lord, once again we thank you for gathering us all together to celebrate this table of remembrance, remembrance of the cross and sacrifice the gift that you gave to each and every one of you, so that we may move forward reflecting your life and being your presence in the world. We thank you for your presence in our daily life, and we thank you for answering prayer and the fulfillment of your covenant. We thank you and praise you in Jesus. Amen. As we drink of the cup, let us reflect on the beauty of forgiveness. The apostle says this in this text. He says, but a man must examine himself And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And then skipping a couple verses, it says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And again, this is, the body there is not talking about our individual body. It's talking about the corporate people of God, and they're coming together to understand the power of God in their midst. That, you know, again, the Church of Corinth had some problems with understanding the unity in the faith, understanding the purpose for our gathering. 
So as we conclude this amazing ceremony or celebration of the power in the blood, the power that is in the body of Christ, the power that we have in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that each of us have been empowered to know that Christ is here. He's in our midst. That presence means something. And I pray that we'll continue to press in to understand the meaning of his presence in our lives in all that we celebrate as we continue our ordinances and following after him. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for the, the privilege to have this communion with you, that we have a relationship with you, Lord, that is renewed daily, that you have a grace and a mercy that you bestow upon us daily, Lord. We thank you for your word and the truth that it contains, that you've built us up as a Bible church, that we can have communion with not only you, Lord, in this celebration, but communion with one another. It truly is one body, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for all that you have given to us. And we pray that you would continue to provide the increase and to let us see that and take notice of that in our lives. Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And now we will collect our benevolent offering. Good morning, and thank you once again for the opportunity.